Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee Green estate in the land of the free Raised in the woods so he knew every tree Killed him a bar when he was only three Davy, Davy Crockett understand why you want to break into the system because man somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence hey 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 it's the big master control program everybody's been talking about kevin flynn computer genius <laughs> taken prisoner and held captive within the digital world of the computer itself inside an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. everyone to an episode of be kind rewind this is your disney plus movie podcast i of course am dan teats and i am joined with the man that used to be referred to as my disneyland compatriot but now he's branching out i have scott gardner on the line <laughs> hello how's it going it is a wonderful time to be able to speak to you, especially since we're talking about one of your favorite movies tonight. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm jazzed for this one because I really dig this movie. So, yes, absolutely. Well, in case y'all have been living under a rock or this is your first episode, in which case we will let you pause right now, go back and catch up with the other 150 episodes, and we'll be here when you get back. 
And we're back. <laughs> we are talking about the July 9th, 1982 release that is known as Tron. This movie did $50 million in box office, which is $157.2 million in today's money. And I think it was actually considered a failure by Disney. Am I right on that, Scott? That's my understanding as well. Yeah, now I don't know if it's because it didn't do what they projected which is what i suspect because you know this is uh, you know they did 50 million on a budget of 17 million so that's almost three times you know made it almost three times its money mm-hmm. so i thought that was a pretty good metric for success but i also wonder much like the black hole before it if they were thinking that this was going to be a, you know their star wars or something like that which of course it, it was not um, but yeah, that, that's, that's always been my understanding is that it was considered, not necessarily considered a failure as so much as just, it, it didn't light the world on fire type of thing. But this is one of those movies that, uh, you know, quickly garnered a, like an underground following and became like a cult classic type yeah. of thing. And that's, that's kind of the status it seems to have today. And it has been such a cult classic that it did the sequel in 2010, and I think the Disney ride opened earlier this year, and you were one of the first people to ride it? <laughs> I, I was among the first, yeah. I got okay. a, a cast member preview on it, so yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and I dug it. I, th- I thought it was really well done. Um, it's a little short. was really my, my only real critique for it. Um, it doesn't seem to have much of a... Uh, a story as far as the queue set up, you know, most of the time with uh, with an attraction, you know, the queue does a really good job of kind of mm-hmm. setting the story and, and setting the tone and explaining like why you're there. And I I didn't really catch that, but of course when we went to the to the preview, you know, they're they're kind of they're kind of shoving you through almost, you know. So it, it might have been just a matter of going through the queue too fast and not really catching the setup. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm well overdue to go go ride it again. I've only just done that uh, that preview, you know, pre-opening. But uh, but yeah, I, I dug it. But I mean, I was an easy mark for it anyway. You know, I feel like I've waited my whole life for you know for a real Tron attraction. So I you know I would take you know pretty much whatever they would give me. But that said, I, I do wish that there were had been some. Um, Easter eggs or something for the original because that's still the one I prefer. I'm I'm not real high on Tron Legacy. I think it's a beautifully, uh, you know, it's a beautiful film to look at. You know, incredible sound, and if you ever get a chance to see it in 3D, it's got you know some really spectacular 3D. But it's pretty pretty short on story. I I felt like it, the story was like written by somebody that once have heard of Tron from a friend or something. I, I didn't feel like it it syncs up very well with the original movie. So it's basically like the people that take DC comics, read one issue and say, well, I know the entire backstory having read issue 438 of Superman. So I'll go make the Superman movie now. Yeah, I was just gonna say. Yeah, it's like it's like the people that go. Well, I heard of Superman once, so I'm the guy that can make the definitive Superman movie. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah, it's it's kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think between us and that person, you and I could probably make a better Superman movie than than they than a lot of people have made. But we aren't oh, here. I'm, we aren't I'm here to convinced. dog on Superman today. <laughs> but I, I figure we'll probably talk a little bit about the flash and things like that off air. So I'm not 
<laughs> so that way we aren't starting down that path right now. So how many times have you watched Tron in the last week? With <laughs> in the last week, movie? in the last week, just uh, just yesterday, I, I you know watched it again, which it was funny because I, I really debated with myself. I was like, do I really need to sit and rewatch this? I mean, I, I can pretty much quote the movie forwards and backwards, but uh, but no, I decided I'd, I'd sit down, I'd watch it again. Uh, I watched it on Disney Plus. Uh, I was pretty impressed with, uh, you know, a lot of times with streaming. I I, I collect, uh, and I've really been on a, a like a binge lately of scarfing up a lot of physical media mm-hmm. because I find that um, definitely for the sound and and often for the picture too. I just find that physical media um, sounds better. I, I have a, you know, a, a, a Dolby Atmos system, um, in the, up, basically the upstairs of my house is a movie theater. Essentially. Um, we designed it that way, uh, when the house was built. So, you know, I have a, a 14 foot screen. I've got, you know, the, the 7.1, uh, Dolby surround system. So I'm very particular in how I watch my movies and, uh, and the way I like the, them to be heard and that sort of thing. So I've, I'm not usually all that crazy about the streaming services because most of them, even if they say that they're, you know, a certain format or whatever, a lot of times they're fudging. Mm-hmm. Um, but Tron looked and sounded great through uh, through the Disney Plus. So I was pretty pleased with that. I, it looked really sharp. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I had I've seen the movie so many times, but I, I did decide to sit and, uh, and do a rewatch. um Really just trying to watch it with, uh, you know, it's funny you had remarked before we started recording about, you know, trying to bring kind of a critical eye even to something that you love. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to do that, but I also end up getting sucked right into it. It's just it's just a movie that I really, really enjoy. But it's not without its flaws, uh, you know, which yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, there, there is at least one sequence in the film that's always drove me a little bit batty, and it, it, it still does today. I think it just... Every time I see it, I think it just actually gets worse when I watch it. I'm like, oh, I just don't like this one part. But otherwise, yeah, it's, I still think it, it holds up really well. I still think it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, and and I, I was looking at your feed because you had actually commented that you were watching Tron. And yeah. somebody had actually commented that it was in that whether or not it was in 4K. And I just pulled it up on Disney Plus, and it is not in 4K. Yeah, that I didn't think it was only because if it was out in 4K, um, I would think that they would have released it as physical media that mm-hmm. way. And I looked to see if there was a 4K, UH, I think they call it UHD disc mm-hmm. out there for Tron, and I couldn't find one. All I could find was that it has been released on Blu-ray. I actually don't have that yet, but... Uh, after I watched the movie, I dug out, there was a really nice, I want to say it was the 20th anniversary set, but there was a really nice um, two-disc DVD set that was released several years back. Um, I do have that, and I dug that back out to watch the special features that are on it. Um, these days, DVD is dead, and you can go to, like, Goodwill or, or you know, uh, Salvation Army or whatever, pawn shops, whatever, all across the country and pick DVDs up for like 50 cents to a dollar. I strongly encourage your listeners, if you're at all interested in this movie or if you're a big Tron fan, but you don't have that DVD set, 
go haunt your local Goodwill and, and find yourself a copy for like a buck. It's well worth your time and money because the special features on there are really awesome. Lots of interviews, lots of classic stuff. Um, it's really cool. And I, I also discovered there's a uh, there's a commentary track, which I don't know that I've ever actually uh, listened to the commentary track. It was with Lisberger. Um, who was the the director and the creator of Tron, and I forget, several other people, too, and I want to say maybe even Jeff Bridges was in on it, but I know there were several people on the commentary. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I've ever listened to it, I've forgotten that I've listened to it, and I need to listen to it again. But, yeah, it's it's worth your time. And I don't know, that might be on the new Blu-ray as as well. I'm not sure. I don't don't have the Blu-ray, so all that stuff might be duplicated on the Blu-ray. I tried to look up the specs on the blu-ray to see what was included and i couldn't find anything out about it so i i really don't know well this movie is well now it's 40 plus years old i'm really feeling old <laughs> so i'm actually i'm surprised that they didn't put out like a 40th anniversary dual set with that and tron legacy on it because tron Legacy's over 10 years old right and then even put on the um the very badly done cartoon which is also on I haven't Disney+. seen the cartoon. I, I've wondered about that. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't seen the cartoon. The cartoon um, is it's more for people that dug the movie, but it's the graphics on it. It doesn't do justice to the actual film. It's like the heads are all real blocky and stuff, and it it took me out. But I watched the entire thing just because. I was a purist when the, when it came out, and I was like, I gotta see what it's about. But it's, I don't see why they didn't put together like a three di- a three disc because I think it's ten or thirteen episodes. And I'm sure if there's a fanatron on this list, then they'll write in and say, No, you lunkhead, it was a twenty six episode. Why can you not remember the second half of the season? But yeah, I don't I don't see why they haven't put together some kind of a a re release for the 40th but they might be holding off on the 50th i don't know i i i kind of vaguely remember when the 40th came and went Mm -hmm. um and it didn't seem like it was really much of anything other than you know some people mentioning on on the internet that hey this is tron's 40th and then it just kind of came and went but tron has long been that kind of redheaded stepchild as far as disney's concerned you know they they never really in in my opinion anyway they've never really strongly now i say this with a multi-million dollar attraction having just opened in (laughs) you know in magic kingdom based on tron but of course that's based on legacy but um you know but that said i i've often felt that you know tron and, you know, there, there's a long line of other films that Disney, in my opinion, just doesn't exploit enough as far as, like, you, you just you, you rarely see, like, pins and merch and T-shirts and that sort of thing uh, of certain properties, even though it's known that they have a, a fan following. And Tron has always been one of those ones that's really frustrating that there wasn't more stuff. And... You know, now that there is the attraction, at least, you know, in the gift shop at Magic Kingdom, at least there's now there's some Tron stuff out there. But, you know, not like you would think when you when you know that there's something that that people are really uh, rabidly fanish of, you would think that they would really want to exploit that. But they, they, strangely, they they really have not. It's it's been very low key all these years, in my opinion. But I don't know. It's kind of odd that way. 
All right. Well, all right. And the synopsis, which as always comes to us care of Wikipedia, goes a little something like this. Kevin Flynn is a leading software engineer, formerly employed by the computer company Encom, who now runs a video game arcade and attempts to hack an Encom's mainframe system. However, Encom's master control program, also known as MCP, halts his progress. Within Encom, programmer Alan Bradley and his girlfriend, engineer Laura Baines, discover that the MCP has closed off their access to projects. When Alan confronts the senior executive vice president, Ed Dillinger, Dillinger claims that the security measures are an attempt to stop outside hacking attempts. However, when Dillinger privately questions the MCP through his computerized desks, he realizes that the MCP has expanded into a powerful virtual intelligence and has become power-hungry, illegally appropriating personal, business, and government programs to increase its own capabilities. Dillinger rose to the top of Encom by stealing video games that Flynn had created, presenting them to the company as his own. The MCP blackmails Dillinger with information about his plagiarizing Flynn's games if he does not comply with its directive. Laura deduces that Flynn is a hacker, and she and Alan, oh, is the hacker, excuse me, and she and Alan go to his arcade to warn him. Flynn reveals that he has been trying to locate evidence proving Dillinger's plagiarism, which launched Dillinger's rise in the company. Together, the three form a plan to break into income and unlock Allen's Tron program, a self-governing security measure designed to protect the system and counter the functions of the MCP. Once inside income, the three split up, and Flynn comes into direct conflict with the MCP, communicating with his terminal. Before Flynn can get the information he needs to reveal Dillinger's acts, the MCP uses an experimental laser to digitize and upload Flynn into the Incom mainframe cyberspace, where programs are living entities appearing in the likeness of human users who used, who created them. Flynn learns that the MCP and his second-in-command, Sark, rule and coerce programs to renounce their beliefs in the users. The MCP MCP forces programs that resist to play in deadly games and thus begins putting Flynn into duels. Flynn meets other captured programs named Ram and Tron between matches. Partnered, the three escape into the mainframe during a light cycle match, an arcade game that Flynn broke the program to and is skilled at, but Flynn and Ram become separated from Tron by an MCP pursuit party. While attempting to help Ram, who was wounded in the pursuit, Flynn learns that he can manipulate portions of the mainframe by accessing his programmer knowledge. Ram recognizes Flynn as a user and encourages him to find Tron and free the system before de-resing. Using his new ability, Flynn partially rebuilds a recognizer vehicle, which is a construct taken from another of his games, and later disguises himself as one of Sark's computers, or one of Sark's soldiers. Tron enlists the help from Yori, a sympathetic program and an IO tower retrieves information from necessary from Alan necessary to to destroy the MCP. Flynn rejoins them and the three board a hijacked solar sailor to reach the MCP's core. However, Sark's command ship destroys the sailor, capturing Flynn and Yori and presumably killing Tron. Sark leaves the command ship and orders its destruction but Flynn keeps this intact by again manipulating the mainframe while Sark reaches the MCP's core 
on a shuttle carry, carrying captured programs. While the MCP attempts to absorb captive programs, Tron, who turns out to have survived, confronts Sark and critically injures him, prompting the MCP to give him all of its functions. Realizing that its ability to manipulate the mainframe might give Tron an opening, Flynn leaps into the beam of the MCP, distracting it. Seeing the break in the MCP's shield, Tron attacks through the gap and destroys the MCP and Sark, ending the MCP's control over the mainframe and allowing the captured programs to communicate with users again. Flynn reappears in the real world, rematerialized at his terminal. Tron's victory is the main in the mainframe has released all lockouts on computer access and a nearby printer produces the evidence that Dillinger has plagiarized Flynn's creations. The next morning, Dillinger enters his office to find the MCP deactivated and the proof of his theft publicized, but is nevertheless glad that the MCP is destroyed. Subsequently, Dillinger is terminated while Flynn is promoted to the CEO of Incom and is happily greeted by Alan and Laura as their new boss. The end. All right, so let me, we're just, we're just going to do stream of thought or stream of consciousness on this because that's, sure. the, that's the only way that I really know to do this. For some reason, I didn't remember that they actually dropped you into Tron when the movie actually started. For some reason, I thought it um, picked up with Bridges. Well, and actually, now that I'm watching it, see, this, this is how bad I misremember things. It has the, it has the Tron figure actually get created and then it drops into Flynn. But for some reason, well, on that I thought... subject, there's... Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say that it's, it's always kind of bothered me that uh, now the, the version that's out there, the one that's streaming and, and the one that's on disc and all that is, to my understanding, it's like that's the original cut of the movie. Mm-hmm. But when I first saw the movie... And I believe this was done for two reasons. It was done for the overseas market, but it was also on subsequent theatrical re-releases. See, I when I first saw it, I'm pretty sure it was the summer of the next year. So summer 83, I'm pretty sure was when I first saw it. And I saw it at the drive-in. And it's funny because I discovered Tron through the story of record the the lp um somebody had bought i think my mother had bought me it and i really don't know why i don't remember why now maybe she thought it was a star wars thing or something or just maybe you know she probably saw it and thought oh this is something my nerdy son will like so anyway i got the story of album and the story of album for anybody that's you know that doesn't remember or doesn't know the the albums that they used to do and they did a lot of them back in the day they did like story of star wars story of raiders of the lost ark story of the black hole you know a whole bunch of them what they would do is they would take the the soundtrack of the movie and i mean not just the music but the sound effects the the dialogue everything and they would try to whittle it down to however long an lp album runs usually like what 30 40 minutes something like that and some, most of the time they were narrated, and the story of Tron one was narrated by Chuck Riley, who, if, if that name doesn't ring a bell, you have definitely heard his voice over the years. He used to be like Mr. Movie Trailer, you know, like the original Die Hard movie trailer. He, he was the voiceover guy in that. Um, 
and I, I think he did a lot of the Disney, um, you know, now coming to DVD, like type intros type of thing. But he was the narrator for the Tron record. Hmm. So I discovered Tron by listening to this record. And the record with the narration is actually really super informative because it fills in a lot of like what the heck is going on that the movie really doesn't do. So I had a leg up on like the average viewer seeing it for the first time. But anyway, I, I memorized that record just by listening to it over and over and over again. And it starts the same way, you know, the, the movie that, you know, that you have on the background starts with, you know, the, that music, that hum comes up and all the pieces of Tron come together and, you know, the logo comes Tron and that's the start of the movie. Well, when I saw it for the first time, that hum, that note starts but before Tron can start to assemble, all of a sudden there was uh, verbiage comes up on the screen. Hmm. And it just basically tells you what's about to happen. It says, you know, the, the, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something about, you know, there are two worlds. There's the world in, you know, that we know, and then there's the world inside the computer. And it sets the whole stage. And then it continues with the formation of Tron and the logo and the movie starts. And I've often wondered why they've never included that, like made that a permanent part of the movie, um, since that was how they represented it, you know, when it started playing, you know, in repeats theatrically and everything. I know it was available as like a, an extra, you know, like one of those like DVD extra type of things, um, you know, with like the cut scene or the, um, what do you call it? The, uh, like bonus scenes or whatever type of thing. But I don't know. I just, I think it would work really well to just include it with the regular release of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I've often wondered why they didn't do that, but that the first time I saw it, that's how I saw it was, was with that preface in there. Yeah. And see, I'm, I'm about 10 years younger than you. I think, well, I, I may be stretching it may not even be that much. <laughs> um, but we got... Well, I'm 55, if that okay. helps. <laughs> All right, I'm 48, so seven. Seven years difference. And I think, I want to say the first time that I saw it, it was on probably ABC or whatever was running The Wonderful World of at the time. Right. And so as probably a five, six, seven, eight-year-old, I didn't stay up for the entire movie, so I didn't know how it turned out. But... Being a kid that played computer games his entire life, but not the computer games that everybody else played. I didn't have a Nintendo. I didn't have a Sega. I had an old Trash 80. <laughs> one color, which was green, because that was what I learned to program on in fifth grade. And so I liked graphics, but for whatever reason, I didn't buy the the computers that all the other kids were buying, which had at least four colors on it. And so watching this now with having the blue, the yellow, the red, it kind of drew me back to fifth and sixth grade where I was learning to first do the computer programming. And like you'd have, and I'm really dating myself, ASCII art and like the, you design like little pictures that could print out on things and stuff like that. Right. And this this right. kind of, this kind of brought me back to that. But the fact that we had Flynn's, and for whatever reason, like I said, I think I actually had a book book 
of the story of Tron, and it dropped you in with Jeff Bridges being derezzed and reconfigured in in the world, and it didn't actually give you the backstory of everything else that was happening. Hmm. And so the fact that we had users, which are the quote unquote gods of the world, right? I just it went over my head when I was watching it as a kid and all that because not not my cup of tea because that was not what I was raised with but then to actually have it go back and forth the way that it did until he actually gets dropped into the movie which I think that's like what 30 minutes in probably thereabouts yeah I mean for some reason I I never remembered all of the backstory on on the actual movie and I didn't and I'd for obvious reasons, didn't remember Clue because Clue was only in there for a microcycle to use the Tron verbiage. Right. And I didn't realize that that was a, that everybody that was in the game had a real life analog, I guess is the best right. way to put it. Right. And that, that's one of those things that I, I feel like they could have done a, a better job with, uh, you know, making a little more obvious mm-hmm. because like Ram, um, you only see his analog just very briefly. And yeah. I feel like you really have to be kind of a, a nerd fan of this movie, like a mega fan of the movie to even realize that Ram does have uh, an analog in the real world and who it is that, you know, so that sort of thing. So yeah, I, yeah. I you know, that, that is definitely one of those things they set up, but they didn't uh, they didn't explain or pay off, uh, you know, in, in entirely the right way in some instances. And for the people that may have watched this movie in preparation of listening to this podcast, because we always put out next week's homework is insert movie title here. Ram is actually the the real world analog is the guy that asks about the donuts. Am I right? With popcorn, pop, popcorn. Yeah, yes, Alan. If you can have some of his popcorn, yeah, yeah. yep, that's him. Yeah, and and I didn't put two and two together until I was starting to look up information on the movie. I was like, well, this guy looks like that guy, and this guy looks like this girl, or this girl looks like this girl. Yeah, we're not one of those movies. But the fact that Clue is actually is actually in a tank game that has analogs in the real world because i think i actually played that game in like early 90s at college (laughs) on like my second computer and i actually got pretty good at that game but i never realized all of the game world aspects of this because oh absolutely the um the things that he's shooting at are out of zaxxon and i think there was a tic-tac-toe icon on Sark's big wall, and there was a Pac-Man logo on Pac-Man. The yeah, there's definitely a Pac-Man in there. Yeah, and several of the sound effects um, mm-hmm. that they use throughout the movie come from video games, uh, or you know, are, are close facsimiles of sounds from video games. Some some of them they probably didn't have the rights to, so they they fudge <laughs> something close to it. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, you you actually see. In one close-up shot of Sark, you actually see a Pac-Man right next to his head and hear the waka-waka-waka sound 
And there's another instance, I think it's after he gets angry and clubs one of his henchmen and knocks him to the ground. You actually hear the, the uh, Pac-Man death sound, like when Pac-Man would, would touch a ghost and go and fade away. Mm. Uh, you actually hear that sound in the background. Now, when you were watching it, where was the hidden Mickey? Because I, cause I, I looked <laughs> for that and I never saw it. So this was not something I discussed. This was pointed out to me years ago. And, and I felt like such a dope when I finally saw it because I'm like, oh, my God, how am I watching this movie hundreds of times mm-hmm. my whole life? And I've never seen this. And it's funny because that was the picture. I, t- I took a, a picture of it, you know, playing up on my screen and posted it to Facebook when I when I tagged myself that I was watching the movie. And a friend of mine said, oh, my God, how have I never seen that before? But the the easy explanation is, is that for how many years have we been watching this movie on a TV screen in pan and scan? Mm -hmm. And so we haven't seen it theatrically. You know, we haven't seen it in in widescreen. So you couldn't really see the whole Mickey. But right after the solar sailor, um leaves its you know little docking port there and after all the dialogue and everything when it's truly just sailing along for the first time and there's that that wonderful just light music playing underneath it um it you you get this perspective shot where you're kind of looking down at it from above and it goes over this weird it almost looks like a bath mat or something uh, on the ground but if you pay really close attention it's a it's a hidden mickey but it's not the traditional three circle mickey it's like a mickey head in profile with mickey smiling hmm. but you have to really be looking for it to see it because it's it's kind of cleverly disguised in plain sight mm-hmm. it's that sort of thing uh, but it's really cool to see that. I, I, I'm so tickled when uh, when I finally was able to see it for the first time because I'd heard for years that it was there, you know, that there was one in the movie, but I could never find it. But of course, I was always looking for the the traditional yeah. hidden Mickey, you know, the the three circle Mickey, and that's not the kind of Mickey that it is. So you you kind of have to hunt for it. But if you get to the part. Um, like where so, where they're uh, in danger from the surge on the beam, then then you've gone too far. It's it's in between those. It's in between when they first leave on the solar sailor and when the solar sailor uh, becomes endangered for the first time. It's it's somewhere in that stretch. I, I don't know the minutes, unfortunately. And I'm actually I'm looking that up right now. So. <laughs> Because I, because I'm sure I'm not the only nerd that's listening to this saying, "Well, now I have to go look and see where this is." Twenty-seven. I'll tell you one of the things that I've been looking for for years, and I and I think I know now where it is, or or rather who it is, but it's really tough to tell. Is one of my childhood heroes is is Captain Marvel from the old Shazam live action TV series from the seventies. And the actor that played him in the first season um, was an actor named Jackson Bostwick. It's probably the most famous thing he ever did. But he's actually in Tron. And I've tried to find him for years, and I'm like, I don't know where he is. Well, apparently he's one of the, the Red Guards, and I think he's the one that never talks. There's There's like two of them that are almost always together in the shots, and one of them is the one that, like, 
prods Jeff Bridges when he first arrives in the computer world, and then there's a scene where they escort him to the prison for the first time, and he prods him again to get him to go into the room. I think it's the other guard, the one that doesn't actually ever... I don't think he ever has a line. I think that's Bostwick, but it's really hard to tell. But I I do know he's in there somewhere. (laughs) So it's so it's one of those things like with the new Star Wars movies where everybody wants to have a cameo for something and right. right. All right. So I am actually and we have really jumped far into the movie to get to this. We're at about 18 minutes left in the movie. <laughs> okay. And that's where the that's where the ship actually gets torn up by the destroyer or whatever Sark's um ship is. Right. So it's before that. So that way y'all have somewhere to actually. Now, watching this for the preparation for the podcast, it it tripped me out that when um Dillinger's Dillinger first makes his um appearance, he is actually in a red ship or a red helicopter. Yeah. And then at the end when it's actually Flynn, the helicopter is actually blue. So I don't oh, know. Oh, that's a good that's a good catch. I don't think I've ever caught that before. That's a good catch. <laughs> Cuz you're absolutely right. Yeah. I I never I never put that together before. Yeah, I love that night shot of the mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me a lot. Now, of course, this show would come later, um but there was a show that was basically a complete rip-off of Tron except the conceit of the show was that they did it in reverse. So rather the, the, of the man getting sucked into the computer, it was a computer person that comes out and, and it operates in the real world. And it was a show called auto man hmm. and it's really not very good and it has not held up well, but it had really cool visuals. And one of the coolest visuals was he had a car that he could uh, create, I guess, or something like that. And the car um, is basically just an outline of of straight, you know, straight light lines like the helicopter in that scene. And and I like that aesthetic. It's just really cool looking. But, you know, those night shots of the helicopter Mm -hmm. with with just that red piping outline look, it just looks really, really neat. And so, you know, that he's going to be the bad guy just based on (laughs) what what we've seen in the first uh 13 minutes of the movie. Well, you know he's going to be the bad guy because he's David Warner. <laughs> yeah. At the top of my head, I can only think of one time I, uh, that where David Warner wasn't the bad guy in, in something that I've, that I've watched. But I, I, you know, I was so sad when he passed away recently because uh, that, that's an actor I have always, always really enjoyed. And, and, and anything I've ever seen him in, I, I thought he was great. He was just, you know, a real class act, uh, a really great actor, but uh, an, an awesome bad guy. He was just one of those, you know, classic, like, boo-hiss kind of bad guys. You know, you you, uh-huh. you, 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 hate, you knew you were supposed to hate him, but you kind of liked him, too, because he was just a slimy bad guy, you know? <laughs> All right, so the ROM analog pops up at an hour, 25 minutes, and 28 seconds left in the movie. So we're talking really, really early in the movie. And it is a blink and you'll miss him moment. Yep. So I'm wondering if they had a thought of him doing, of them expanding his universe. Or I mean, I know he gets killed off in the movie, but like to see what he was doing. 
in real life that made his character be halfway good at video games? Right. Yeah. I, I yeah, I don't know. I've often wondered about that. But for you know, for as little as he's in the movie and everything, um, that uh, you know, the death of Ram is still one of those hmm. those moments that kind of chokes me up a little bit. He he's just a likable guy. That actor, I, I I'm blanking on his name at, off the top of my head, but he's he's just a really likable guy. So you you know, you can kind of become attached to him very quickly in the movie, and and mm-hmm. you know, he passes away, even though he was just a, a you know a, a computer construct. You know, there's a little bit of a gravitas to that scene. I really like that. What's funny is, you know, for years I would watch um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, another one of my favorite movies. And every time I would see Billy the Kid, it would drive me nuts. I'm like, I know this guy. Where do I know this guy from? And I, I could never place it. And it wasn't until um, we were doing that show on a podcast once, and I was looking at the credits of different actors that I realized Billy the Kid in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is Ram from Tron. It's the same actor, but I never put the two of them together. Hmm. Dan Shore. Dan Shore. Yeah, that's it. Yep. And he is actually just characterized as an NCOM employee. So. He got a name eventually, though. There was yeah. a uh, a short film, uh, I think it was a promotional film that they did for Tron Legacy um, that established the whole uh, Flynn Lives movement and all that. And that was primarily carried by him. Hmm. And his character actually got a name in that short and everything. So that 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 character comes back. So when we first get introduced to Dillinger, he puts in the master control powers, um, password, which Mm -hmm. is master. Is that not like (laughs) one of the top, is that not like (laughs) one of the top four, um, passwords that gets swiped by everybody nowadays? And, and it's, it's kind of, I, I, I caught that. I caught that too, and then I got to thinking. You know, there is a line from Jeff Bridges where he's describing Dillinger, and he says, "You know, not so young, not so bright, but very, very sneaky." And I, I mm-hmm. think that's a nice illustration of the not so bright thing that he's using a pretty obvious password. Yeah, and so we find out that MCP is delving into other worlds, other. Um, defense programs because now he's bringing in defense games to start playing against Sark so that way he can up his HP or no his experience not his HP that's that's something different (laughs) and so then we cut to the love interest and the guy that ends up being the input output control guy in the analog and when I see their suits is this supposed to be clean suits that they're wearing uh, instead of just like cuz it's yeah kind of kind of sorta i mean speaking as somebody who has never worked in this industry so i probably cannot speak to this with any shred of authority i think you're supposed to be head to foot in a <laughs> in something that has a face shield and everything like that cuz that's what they do in outbreak and that and that's my basis for clean suits <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I think it was just to give them a a, a sort of doctor, scientist, engineer kind of look or something mm-hmm. like that. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not quite sure on that. 
but that that facility was a real thing in real life. That was an actual laser, like the most powerful laser in the world at the time. Um, you know, the actual laser lab. Yeah, and then as soon as they're done digitizing the orange and bringing it back, the girl takes off her clean suit and flips her hair, which completely <laughs> destroys the cleanness of the facility. <laughs> Well, the thing, too, is I, I like, you know, Alan has a little line about, you know, can it send me to Hawaii? Because basically what they're doing is this is almost like the transporter in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And they don't really spend a, a lot of time. They, they kind of set it up because this is, the, of course, the mechanism they're going to use to pull Flynn into the computer. Um, but they don't linger a whole lot over this they just kind of demo that okay this is something else that's going on you know in Encom. this is some other thing that's being worked on or whatever but that's that's pretty cool that's pretty fascinating technology and i, I don't want to forward project too much to tron legacy because like <laughs> i say i don't really think a whole lot of that movie but i would think that within the world of Tron that all those years later, unless there was some catastrophic accident or, uh, you know, the government shut them down or something, I would think that would be world changing technology right there. And they're working mm -hmm. on this in 1982 or whatever year Tron is supposed to be taking place in. So you would think when they pick that story up, you know, 40 years later that, that their futuristic, you know, their future world would be very different from the world we actually got in 2010 because of that technology but it doesn't really pan out that way but that's basically what it is is you know teleporter or, or not not quite transporter but kind of this kind of sort of it's yeah. almost the same thing yeah and if, and if you want to think about a non um yeah now my brain just went blank on me <laughs> a non-sci-fi application wasn't that what he what um willy wonka did to billy tv uh maybe i believe it or not i've never seen that movie it, it weirds me out <laughs> well i mean it it weirds out it's it's a very weird movie so the fact that you haven't seen it that's not you're 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 probably missing fever dreams if, if it's not <laughs> one for you so but yeah then then all of a sudden they um, Alan's locked out because he has level seven clearance and they're talking about tampering, which of course is a Tron program that they're referring to, not wanting to actually let him in. And so they go talk to Flynn and we come back to one of the coolest video game setups, game room extraordinaire, which I really miss even if oh, it is yeah. the 80s video games. That he got oh, 999,000 points, which is a new high score, probably because it couldn't go to a million. See, this is one of those things where I wonder about the impressions that someone would have seeing this who didn't live through the era. If, mm -hmm. if they would understand, you know, what they're seeing, if you know what I mean. Because you have to remember, for one thing, you know, Tron... It, it, it pains me greatly, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of, you know, because of where I work, and there's a lot of young people, we play a lot of stuff on, you know, from Disney Plus on the monitor, like in our break room and our headquarters, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. 
And so I, I hear a lot of comments from especially the, the younger people about some of the, the older movies. And Tron is one of those ones that elicits a lot of, unfortunately, negative comments from young people um, because of, you know, they, they perceive it as old and cheesy and that sort of thing. But that that pains me because the movie really was far ahead of its time. I mean, the, the master control program is essentially utilizing the Internet Mm-hmm. Long before there was really an internet that we all knew about, um, you know that sort of thing. You know, by by actually going in and, and corporate rating, you know, through computers and things like you know. So so that was futuristic at the time. A lot of the lingo in the movie at the time was futuristic and using a lot of, you know, computer terminology that wasn't yet in the the you know out in the public, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But uh, you know the computer. Uh, graphics and the technology you know I love that arcade scene because I was a kid of the 80s arcade I mean I misspent a lot of my youth and a <laughs> lot of money pumping yeah. quarters into the very games that are in that scene but much like another movie from this era the the last starfighter you know you look at the at the game that Alex Rogan's playing in that and it was so far in advance of anything we could have dreamed of at the time and it's the same thing with what um Flynn is playing in the arcade when he's playing Space Paranoids you know it's very obvious in some of the POV shots that it's just you know it's a regular TV inside that box playing a piece of footage because there were no video games that looked that good in 1982. Mm-hmm. Everything looked like like Pac-Man or Asteroids or Space Invaders. You know nothing had polygonal graphics or anything like that. That was that was light years beyond you know anything that was in the arcade at that time. Now that stuff is very quaint and very simple, but I, I just wonder if you know, do younger, uh, younger people watching that even catch that? Do they even realize that that was futuristic at the time? And probably not. They're pro- they probably don't even catch it and realize it because to them it all looks old. You know, it all looks ancient. But it wasn't at the time. That was that was high sci-fi at the time. Yeah. I mean the the graphics even for the even for what was being shown was cutting edge at the time and it and it's oh, absolutely. yeah yeah and, absolutely. and I loved it yeah those I mean everything you see in the computer you know the light cycles and the tanks and the solar sailor and sarks I mean those computers that made that stuff they were the most compo- you know powerful or among the most compo- uh, most powerful computers in the world at the time and you know the render time on all that stuff was like stupid long i mean it was it was taking them like months mm-hmm. to render seconds of what we see on the screen but that was you know that was the limits of the technology at the time and they pushed it right to the edge um, but it pays off because, you know, combined with the audio, because I, I don't feel like the audio of this movie gets enough credit because that's a lot of what makes the movie work to me is the immersiveness of 
the especially the computer environment when you're in that world of the computer it has a un, not only unique look and feel but it has a very unique sound to it mm-hmm. and you marry that sound with the visuals and it makes it all come off because i i tried this once where during like say the light cycle sequence you know the big light cycle race where, where they end up escaping three. yeah you mute the sound during that and just look at the visuals and it, it looks pretty quaint by today's standards because this is stuff that you could easily render yourself these days on an, any decent home computer. But you kick in that sound and especially, again, if you've got a really good surround sound system and it makes it all work because the I, I don't know who the sound designer was on this. I don't think it was anybody like Ben Bird or what, but they did a masterful job on that. And it really pulls it all together and, and makes it work, you know, beautifully. And it's why it really holds up, um, even with you know the the you know by today's standards the relatively simple graphics. But I mean, they didn't skimp on those graphics either. I mean, mm-hmm. they they pushed that technology as far as they could at the time, and so they had, you know, excellent shading and reflections and things moved. Um, they might be a little herky jerky, but they moved in a way that you didn't see computer things move at that time in the real. Because you know, you talked about you know the the Trash eighty that you had. I mean, that was most people at the time. That was most people's familiarity with computers was something like that, something very basic, something very simple, with mm-hmm. blocky style graphics, if there were any graphics at all. And so to see something like that, where you had motorcycles that leaned and tilted and skidded as they, I mean, that was mind blowing stuff. And and again, it's one of those things that I, I feel like isn't appreciated enough today. How mm-hmm. how far ahead of time, you know, it, uh, how far ahead of itself this movie really was um, in those kind of aspects. And I don't know, I. It's it's hard because it's it's hard to be objective with things that you really love. But I look at this and I I still think it holds up beautifully. I I think it's just a beautiful film to look at. It has a real dreamlike quality. This is one of those movies I've I've often said this is a great midnight movie. This is one of those great movies to to get started watching at like midnight. Because if you get a little sleepy or maybe if you if you even doze off a little bit, it actually lends into the feel of the movie. Because when he's in the world of the computer, mm-hmm. everything has this very surreal, dreamlike quality to it. I, I liken it to The Wizard of Oz. Because The Wizard of Oz, you know, when it starts out, you're in Kansas with Dorothy and everything has this sepia tone. But when she opens that door in Munchkinland and and walks out of the house, she's in a completely different world that feels very surreal and very dreamlike. And Tron does exactly the same thing. You know, you start out in the real world with with the exception of the little bit with Clue at the beginning. But for the most part, you're you're in the real world. You're in a, a real environment that we're all familiar with. But as soon as he gets sucked into the computer world, it's just so different and unique and, and just surreal and dreamlike like Wizard of Oz is. And I, I love that. And so I, I just I, I think it's just like the perfect late night, maybe when you're a little sleepy, maybe even a little tipsy kind of movie. 
and it just works so well on that level. Yeah, the the ability to actually be able to watch this as you're going to sleep, and you yeah. you, you would you if you're a child of the '70s and '80s like we are, this would be something that you could see yourself getting sucked into. Nowadays, kids are like, yeah, just give me my augmented reality or my virtual reality and I'll be fine. Um, well, one so, of the things I wish that they would understand, though, is that those things that they're enjoying today, you know, computer-wise, especially like, you know, the augmented reality or you know, virtual reality, um, CGI movies, especially. Mm-hmm. This is that. This is the grandfather of all that. All of that stuff comes from Tron. Mm-hmm. You know, Pixar, Pixar animation. There would not be a Pixar without Tron because you talk to any of the classic Pixar guys, you know, John Lasseter or any of those guys from the very beginning, and they all cite this movie as their inspiration. They saw Tron and it blew their minds. A lot of computer programmers and early gamers and all that, all those guys, you know, they were inspired by this or bolstered. You know, if they were already in that field, then that was the audience. Those were the people that really gravitated to these, you know, to this movie was the, you know, those nerdy computer, you know, the people in early computing. Um, They got it. They understood the language and they understood what it was trying to say and that sort of thing. So so it had its audience. It wasn't a real big audience at first, but those are the people that have, have really latched onto this movie and, and made it, you know, that, that underground cult hit that it's become is the, the people that, that did understand that. Now we are 30 minutes into this movie. Cause I started it right as we started recording <laughs> and Jeff Bridges is just now sitting down to get sucked into the income by master control. So, I mean, we're 30 minutes in before we even see him get sucked into the game. Right. And you would have thought that, that would have started, like, if this would have been redone today, and I know this is something that I say on every movie, you wouldn't get the backstory. I mean, you'd probably get it in flashbacks after he gets knocked out or something like that by running into a wall or something. Yeah, I, I think in the in the sequel, I think his son is is probably in the computer within like the first fifteen minutes mm-hmm. of the movie. But for one, that's a sequel. But also, I, I think that's you know not to get off on a tangent, but I think that's kind of the problem with modern movies these days is they don't know how to let a movie breathe. Sometimes um, movies aren't necessarily as story driven anymore it's more movies are being made for an adhd generation you know Mm -hmm. and so everything's got to be quick and flashy and you know everybody's got to talk real fast and it's got to be really light on story because you don't want to bore people and just explosions and explosions and explosions you know that sort of thing and so that's why i think a lot of people will look back at movies from this era and and especially older than this era and think, Oh, they're so slow and they're so boring. And it's like, no, they're, it's not slow and boring. They're, they're setting up, they're telling you a story and they're setting it up brilliantly. You just have to have a little bit of intention span and, and patience to, you know, to get into it type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's one of those things, sadly, that's been lost, I think, because just too many movies, 
uh, are being made to where they just they come out and everything moves too fast. Um, for some of those movies, that's a good thing because if you stop to think about them for five minutes, they completely fall apart because the, mm-hmm. the story's so weak. But eh, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, he gets sucked in at an hour, five minutes, and 49 seconds left to go in the movie. The movie is an hour and 37 minutes long. So we're 32 minutes in when he actually gets sucked in and becomes a part of the the game world. (laughs) So I did look up who actually did the sound on this, and it is the same guy that did the sound for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Frank Serafine. No way! Yes, sir. That's cool. We, we, it's... It's got the start. It's got, it's got the Star Trek. It's got the sci-fi energy because of who actually helped to do it. That's cool. So he gets sucked in and he's thrown into a jail cell, for lack of a better term, with Tron and with Ram. And then they all three get dropped out and get told that they are all supposed to have an identity disc and they're going to get standard, substandard training if they don't renounce their <laughs> users. Right. And when I saw the quote unquote identity disc, especially with the way that Tron was playing with it, I was like, oh, look, a Frisbee. Yeah. Yeah. They were just Frisbees, too. So why didn't Disney latch onto that and create light up Frisbees? Because, I mean, you know, the thing with 2015 and the um, hoverboards that didn't actually work and blew up on people. There was remarkably little merchandising for this movie Hmm. there were a couple of records there were a couple of books Mm -hmm. um like an official magazine and then super light on toys there was a line of action figures and i i still have three i never got tron strangely oddly enough i never got tron but i got the other three i got flynn sark and the I forget what they call him, but it's basically the guard. But I think they called him the warrior or something like that. Is that the big red guy that's like hulky looking? Yeah. Yep. And each one came with, well, their circuitry glowed in the dark. They were, they were like, they were molded in a, in a translucent mold. So like Sark and the guard were red, but they were translucent Mm -hmm. with glow in the dark circuitry. And then, Flynn and Tron. Well, Flynn was blue and Tron was like a purplish color. Mm-hmm. Um, Flynn, Tron, and Sark all came with a glow-in-the-dark disc, and then the warrior had a glow-in-the-dark staff. And then they had a light cycle, possibly more than one. They may have had different colors. I never got the light cycle. Um, now, in the gift shop, at Magic Kingdom for Tron, the new Tron gift shop, they have retro figures. Mm-hmm. They're they're not original, but they they look similar to the originals. Um, I forget the company that's putting them out. It's a famous company that does like the retroactive action figures, but I can't remember the name of the company. But anyway, they have a new set of figures that are out, and they're really cool. And I wanted them so bad, but they are ridiculously expensive, like way overpriced. And I get a really good discount, and I still thought they were way overpriced. I didn't get any of them. But they have four figures, and they have um, the light cycle. Um, And it it looks a lot like the original light cycle, 
but I didn't get one because, again, ridiculously expensive. But also, the original Light Cycle toy had a rip cord. Um, if you ever had the Evil Knievel, mm-hmm. uh, I did when you were a kid. Yeah, it was the same thing. You would you would rip the cord and let it go, and it would race. Um, the new ones don't have that, and I was just really just I was like, well, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a a, a repro of these things, do it right, you know, mm-hmm. make it like the original. But they didn't. It does not have the rip cord. So, but just the fact that they're putting out some. You know, vintage merch. I, I thought that was kind of, that was pretty cool, and they do have like a vintage uh, identity disc and stuff like that. But yeah, that w- that was about it. There really was uh, the only other thing I could remember was um, a trading card set, and I couldn't tell you how much money I spent collecting the holes. But I got the whole set, man. I got them all, and I love them. They they were some of the coolest looking trading cards ever put out because they were they were black. Um, you know, just like the movie. So like they were, it, it was like, um, like shiny black cards, uh, with, uh, I don't know. It's really hard to describe, but you know how, a how a baseball card or a trading card looks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but rather than just looking like a, like a photo on a card, it was, it was almost, um, not like painted on there, but you know what I mean? It was, it was like a photo on black, but it just, it really made all the colors pop, especially of the computer world stuff look, look just really sharp because the cards were all black. But that, that was a nice set. And I don't know what they go for, but I've noticed that old, um, old non sports cards, like the movie cards or what that there's, there, there doesn't seem to be much value to those. Not like we thought, you know, when we were kids collecting like, Star Wars cards and stuff. We all thought, mm-hmm. oh, these are going to be worth so much money. And my understanding is that they're not worth much of yeah. anything. So uh, you could probably get yourself a, a collection of Tron cards fairly cheap, I would imagine. But I, I have not seen what they're actually going for as a set. But I wouldn't imagine that they're much. But they sure are cool. Well, now yeah, where, you were, it. Where, where you were well, into the um, action figures, I was into the video games. And I still actually have... My Tron um, old school Bally Midway video game. It's like a it's a little console, not the full size like you would see Pac Man and the Donkey Kong. And I'm using my hands like anybody can see this, <laughs> but it had three game modes to it. And I remember that I used to play this game like every Saturday. I'd put in a brand new set of 4D batteries. <laughs> And one time, I actually played through an entire set of D battery. Was it? And, this was a little it, handheld unit. It was like, it was like blue or something, right? Yeah, it was. It was blue. It's probably about half the size of a of a Chromebook laptop, both lengthwise huh. and heightwise. And if I can find it somewhere in the house, I might take a picture of it and actually post it when the um. When the podcast comes out, but there was three, there was three great three game modes, and we're actually getting into the actual um, training for the games in the mm-hmm. movie. There was the the game that he played against the unlucky actuarial table guy, Crom. Crom. Then there was the light cycle game. Actually, the light cycle game was first, and then if you beat that level, then you would go. 
and play the game that he played against Crom, and then if you beat that, then you would actually have the opportunity to throw your um, identity disc at the MCP, which was on the far side of the um, screen. And keep in mind, this is 1980s graphic, so it's like <laughs> two little two little dots for the for the wheels, and then a little bar, so it looked like little Morse code, for lack of a better term. <laughs> And then you had a little, a little slot that could also be a part of the actual um, ring. And like I said, one day for whatever reason the gods were in my favor, and I played through an entire set of D batteries, and the game was going dead when I lost my last life. <laughs> Don't know how many points I got. I was so excited, but. Since we are actually talking about the game mode, is the game that Flynn is playing is that supposed to be Highlight? It's yeah, it's very similar to Highlight, which you know was a big thing back then. Okay, um, but I, yeah, it's, it's was, basically uh, like a computer version of Highlight. Yeah, I was trying to figure out. I was like, why in the seven layers of nacho cheese dip would they put? <laughs> this into the game or put this into the movie but if and you're saying that highlight was big in the 80s and since i don't know if it was still big in the 80s but i remember it being big uh, you know uh, as a kid you know i I was you know very young in in florida in the 70s Mm -hmm. and i remember you know there were a lot of highlight places around you know that was that was a big deal i had i had always thought it was kind of dead by the 80s but maybe it was still going i don't know but yeah, I was it's, actually it's, about it's to ask like a futuristic you, version or like a computer version of Highlight, essentially. Yeah, I was about to ask you since you had to drive up uh, four and eighty one or not eighty one eight or seventy five eighty five. If you saw the Highlight that is still in Florida, there is still an exit that has Highlight. Oh yeah, I, th- I think there's a few of them around still. So all right, that that explains why they were playing Highlight, but it just it it floored me because I was like, why that I don't know anybody that, and I'm sure we are in the very small minority that even know what highlight is, because <laughs> I think they played it in a in an episode of um, Twilight Zone or something like that. Mm, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> so yeah. So apparently Disney predicted that there would be $400 million in merchandise sales, including an arcade game by Bally Midway and three um, home video games, of which I had one, but they only did $70 million in um, revenue. So that hmm. plus the $50 million is why they said it wasn't a success. That's a shame because I know that at least the first arcade game of tron because there were two there was the the classic tron that everybody remembers but then there was also um discs of tron Mm -hmm. and i know that the original tron game is is still considered you know one of the best of all time by a lot of people you know that that were alive back then you know that remember the classic video games and that game was so far ahead of its time um you know I, i mean it had uh, you know, really great graphics for the time. Um, it had a completely unique uh, controller setup to where it had both um, buttons, a really cool joystick with trigger, 
Um, but mm-hmm. then it also had the roller controller as well. So it had all of that in one game and, and multiple game modes. It was it was just pretty unique for the time. But the big thing was the sound. It just had great stereo sound. You know, one of the one of the first, as I recall anyway, one of the first uh, stereo video games. But the sound was just I mean, that was one of the big features of that game was how cool it sounded. Mm-hmm. And it used a lot of the, the same types of sound effects that you would hear in the movie and everything, um, plus the uh, the electronic music. But, yeah, that game was just so far ahead of everything else that was out at the time. And, yeah, there were a, a number of home video games that they did for, for various systems uh, for Tron. Some of them were pretty good games, too. Um, I remember Tron Deadly Discs for... Um, I think they put that out on Intellivision, but I had the um, the M M Networks had the uh, had the license for Tron games on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, hmm. and I had Tron Deadly Discs, which was a really good game. Um, looked a lot like Intellivision, but it basically had the little Intellivision men that were a little bit better than than standard Atari graphics at the time, and then there was another game. I forget what the name of the other one was. I think it was just called Adventures of Tron, I think. And it was kind of like a kind of like a Donkey Kong type of like a like a Burger Time type of game. It didn't really have a hell of a lot to do with Tron, but it had all like the elements, you know. So it was it was basically, you know, it was basically like Burger Time, but instead of running away from like onions or whatever you're running away from in that game it was you you were running away from like grid bugs and recognizers and stuff like that and you know taking elevators up and down and that sort of thing but it was i mean it was fun it just really wasn't very tron like but it was still a fun game but the the deadly disc was cool because they you know you you were battling other warriors with your identity disc and you know if you hit them you know they derez and you know make cool sounds and all that so that that was a pretty cool game that one was a lot of fun i think there was another one but i am blanking as to what the other one was off the top of my head because you said you mentioned three and i think there was a third one but i don't remember what it was off the top of my head i don't think i ever had it yeah and i'm actually i'm looking up the um video game that i had and i'm actually about to put that in the um in the chat because it it's actually on ebay and it's going for a pretty little penny yeah vintage tron stuff does you know certain things you know the toys and that sort of thing that was another reason why i didn't buy any of the uh the the new toys the repo toys that are out because you know you can you can get some of the original stuff for less than what they're charging for the uh for the repo stuff coming out Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah okay. You remember yeah, I that now? That, yeah, I I remember it only because in the special features on the that DVD box set I was telling uh, talking about earlier, they had uh, a photo section in there of some of the merchandise that was out for the movie, and they showed a picture of this, and I don't remember ever having seen it before. So yeah, I missed this when it was out back in the day, but oh yeah, that look that does look really cool. Yeah, that Tom, was Tomitronic, it says. Yeah, and I know that I would not stand a chance at being able to play through a full set of D batteries if you can even find them now. <laughs> well, being older and um I guess we'll call it more wizened. <laughs> See, this is what 
teen Groot should have been playing in uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. too. That would have been cool. Well, That's I'm sure neat. they I'm sure they'll they'll pull it they'll pull it out in the um, special edition 60th anniversary or something like that. <laughs> so, is it just me or was there not really that much gameplay in in the actual movie? Because you have the one game of highlight, you have the one three on three light cycle that, of course, um, Ram, Tron, and Flynn all get away from. And then they just start looking for the input-output portal. And then the rest of the movie is pretty much them trying to figure out how to beat MCP. It's it's kind of scattered throughout the movie. Because, you know, you have the big battle sequence with Tron, you know, where we meet Tron for the first mm-hmm. time in the computer world. And he's in the middle of an arena being assaulted by, like, four different warriors. Yet mm-hmm. he's the one that emerges victorious. That's a pretty cool scene. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, he and Sark face off with the with the discs later in the movie. Um, yeah, that I mean, but yeah, that's essentially it. You know, there's a little bit of uh, of you know the battle at the beginning with uh, with Clue in the tank versus the uh, the recognizers as well. So I mean, there was plenty of stuff for them to pull for for video game ideas and and stuff like that. But what's funny is that you know other than the the classic arcade game um the other games that we got um didn't really pull these other elements you know the, there was the deadly disc game which did you know pull in the the um the disc element but the other games were more just like your standard like adventure type games they didn't really mm-hmm. pull in these other elements as i recall anyway so yeah i'm and like i said i've had this on in the background so we're 45 minutes left in the movie, and now they're out in the world. Well, world being a very loose term. They're outside the actual game world, I guess, is the better way to to say it. And so Tron says that now he has to get to Alan 1, which, if we remember back about 20 minutes earlier, Flynn was supposed to let Alan know that... He was in so that way he could release Tron into the MCP. Right. How long do you think we're actually talking about in this taking place? Because it seems like it was instantaneous that he gets sent back to the present at the end of the movie. Right. Where he where he has all the the information about Dillinger being a hack and having found the information on the game. And everything like that, but it doesn't really. That's you know again, you know I, I hate forward projecting too much to the to the <laughs> sequel, but that is one of the reasons that I really don't care for the sequel as much is because, you know, in the sequel we find that that Flynn has been trapped in the computer since um, I don't know sometime in the in the mid to late '80s, early '90s, something like that. But he's been, he's mm-hmm. been in there for decades. Well, this movie, it doesn't ever really come right out and say it, but I think it's pretty easy to infer that time is moving very differently in the computer than it is in the real world. And I always mm-hmm. had the same impression, like you were saying, that really very little time is progressing in the real world while all of this adventure is happening uh, in the world of the computer. And I, I'm thinking literally like seconds, maybe minutes at most, 
but not like hours or days or anything like that. Like, like all of this is happening very, very quickly. Um, I remember when I took computers as a kid, you know, in high school, um, in one of my computer labs, there was a, a poster on the wall and it said something to the effect of, um, one nanosecond is to one second as one second is to 32,000 years. And I never forgot that. And it just, it's one of those things that boggled the mind, you know? And so I'm thinking in that sequel, you know, if he really had been in the computer for, say, 30 years or more, our time, then in the world of the computer, wasn't he in there for literally like thousands of years? Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't really wash to me, you know, that, that whole thing. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of that movie that doesn't wash, but but yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the 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 short answer to your question is yeah that I I think that very little time is passing in the real world. I think all of this is happening, you know, uh, basically at the speed of light type of thing because it it is an electronic world, and it and it's completely different. One thing I was thinking about today is is when he actually does commune with Alan One. As I think about it, a lot of that dialogue doesn't necessarily make sense as literal dialogue. So I've come to the conclusion that he's not literally speaking to Alan. That he's based, even though you were hearing Bruce Boxleitner's voice giving the dialogue, I don't think that Tron is literally communing, uh, communing with Alan. I think he's basically communing with like a computer. Um, for lack of a better term, like a computer avatar of Alan, that he he's receiving Alan's keyboard instructions through this audio medium, if if that makes any sense. Because otherwise, yeah. the dialogue doesn't really wash. Because even you know even today, we don't in most cases literally speak to our computer and give it literal directions. You know, you, you have to be very basic because computers still aren't really all that smart. And some of the things that he's telling Tron to do just don't really make, make a lot of sense as mm -hmm. literal instructions. So, so I really think it's, it's more for our benefit as the viewer than it is the literal instructions that that tron would be receiving you know verbally from alan because i just don't think that washes and i think there's evidence for for that from the beginning of the movie where it gives the appearance that again that uh flynn and clue are literally back and forth communicating with each other mm -hmm. but then a little bit later when clue is driving the tank he looks at a screen and he says to Bit, he says, now Flynn is saying to look over in here. So he's reading the commands off of a screen. He's he's no longer hearing, uh, you know, that voice. So I don't think that they were ever literally speaking to each other back and forth. I think it, it was all, you know, keyboard commands and, and the verbal part of it was for, for us, the, the, the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's actually at about 27 minutes left in the movie. So we're going to go ahead and jump ahead because it is getting later on your time. Right. And so this is about the time that they commandeer the hyper, the um, solar, solar sail speed or solar, solar whatever thingy. 
and sailor. I've actually yep. so a solar sailor. sailor, and I've looked it up, and the hidden Mickey is at one hour twelve minutes twenty nine seconds. And I actually <laughs> fast forwarded to that part of the movie, and you can definitely see the silhouette, like you were talking yep. about. It's a it's a side profile. It's not your standard three discs. And so jumping ahead, we have what looks like Tron die, which which. I'm trying to think of any other movies before this where we actually have the hero die only to have him come back and save the day at the end of the movie. But I'm thinking that it's a trope that we see in a lot of movies now. Right. And so he's got the he's got a disc and not realizing because it had been a little while since I'd actually seen the movie, so I misremembered. I was like, well, if Tron has the disc that's going to kill mcp and he's dead how are they going to kill mcp so without thinking about it you can kind of figure out oh well he's not really dead because otherwise we don't have an ending to the movie (laughs) so so tron shows back up on the control module while or on the actual ship that sark's on as it's derezzing and it's because they're going to the um, to MCP headquarters, so that way all the people that still believe in the users can die, or all the programs, I think. Right. Or they actually they're get they're getting absorbed in the MCP. And so was the was the reason why Sark became so big and powerful during after he had been beaten by Tron because MCP had put his power into him. Yes, and and this is the moment I was alluding to earlier. Um, As much as I'm loath to say anything bad about this movie, because I I truly do love it, this is the one moment I've I've never liked. Um, Now, in their defense, I think the special effects look great. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's clearly... You know, it's clearly shot a particular way to make David Warner look like a giant, and it and it does look. I'm going to be honest; it looks silly. Mm-hmm. But at the same rate, when you watch it again, pay attention to the moments where Tron, as you know, little tiny Tron, is facing off with giant Sark. Those special effects for 1982 look really sharp. Um, it's it's pretty flawless um, because typically back you know in this era those kind of composite shots usually came off not looking very good even as late as something like say honey I blew up the kid um, usually didn't look all that good when you were dealing with um, either something where like something had been shrunk down and was now dealing with everything being giant around them or vice versa. Like in that movie where you had the giant baby operating in, in the normal world when they would Mm -hmm. do the composites of a small thing, you know, a small person with a giant person, typically they looked pretty bad. They, they, you could tell it was, you know, a composite shot or blue screen, that sort of thing. But these shots with Sark and Tron, there's, there's one shot in particular I'm thinking of where you've got giant Sark and Tron flings his disc. Mm-hmm. I actually, that Sark just popped reaches up. up and, yeah. He just reaches up and deflects it. That is a great shot. It looks seamless. 
And, you know, there's no weird lines around either figure or any fuzz or anything, anything that makes it look like a, like a cheesy composite shot for, for that one moment, it, it looks pretty good. It, it, it works. Mm -hmm. But that said, I, yeah, I've never liked that. For one thing, I didn't like that when Tron throws his disc, he, he literally snaps Sark's disc in two. I don't know why that bugs me so much, but it does. Every time I see that, it really bugs me because it feels like a cheat. And, I, and maybe that's the video gamer in me talking <laughs> because that's not something you could ever do in any of the video games. Yeah. You know, that, that block maneuver was a block maneuver. You know, you block the, other, the opponent's disc with your disc. And so Sark is obeying the rules he's blocking with his disc yet tron's disc just goes right through it and so it's it's one of those like no 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 that's that's against the rules kind of thing mm -hmm. but then you know sark takes the disc right in the head now every other game warrior we've seen struck a fatal blow with a disc in this movie up to this point what happened to them they derezzed right there on the yeah. spot but Sark doesn't. He falls to the ground and like all this like circuitry pours out of his head. It's just it's really bizarre looking. And then while he's laying there and he should be derezzing, the MCP like panics and says, you know, he's calling to Sark, you know, and he's really concerned for him, almost like a like a brotherly concern or, or almost almost like a lover type concern. And he says, you know, Sark, Sark, you know, all my powers are now yours, or all my functions, I think he says. All my yeah. functions are now yours. Take them. Well, I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. This is completely out of character for the MCP, because up to this point, he has not only belittled and berated both Sark and Sark's user, Dillinger, but he's been on this mad power trip to acquire all this power and, and everything. He's just making himself bigger. So for him to suddenly have concern for somebody he's really just treated as a lackey the whole picture, but then turn over all his functions to Sark, it doesn't really make a heck of a lot of sense. And then Sark not only not derezzing, but then suddenly turning into a giant zombie, that's just bizarre. And so as much as I love the movie, that that's one aspect of it I've I've never liked. I think that portion of the ending is really weak. I, I think they would have been much better off with just Tron and Sark have this this epic battle and Tron just wins. Tron takes Sark out. And then Tron goes to the base of the MCP and he's then at that point basically playing the classic game, arcade game where he's taking out the squares. Mm -hmm. But as he's trying to take the squares out, the thing keeps spinning and he just can't ever get his disc in. So Flynn jumps into the beam, distra distracts the MCP, creates an opening, Tron throws in his disc and the MCP blows up. So you've still got the same ending but just not with all the goofiness of, you know, giant Sark. And I think it yeah. just works so much better that way. I, I, yeah, the giant Sark thing has always put me off. I just, I don't get it. I don't understand what the purpose of that particular moment was. Yeah. And, uh, and the fact that as he's, uh, and as he has been zombified several times or as he's zombified, he's still got stuff 
pouring out of his head as he's standing up. Because you see like little bits and blops and bleeps and bloops fall onto the ground. So, I mean, yeah, he's a he's a zombie that shouldn't be there anymore. And you're, it should be done. So maybe they, well, no, I'm not going to say that maybe that needs to be redone. Because that, that would be a totally different movie that probably wouldn't be the cult classic that it is now. <laughs> the, uh, the all I can think of, I mean, the only no prize I can give it is that we do see the MCP feeding Sark like energy several times, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that in that little chamber thing that you know he communes with him with, and mm-hmm. so maybe Sark is like a super program, if you know what I mean. Like he yeah. he's more, you know, he's just more heavy duty than a regular program, so the rules don't completely apply to him as they would to, uh, you know, any other regular, I guess that sort of works, but it, it still just seems odd and, and frankly a little silly to me. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, it's eight o'clock. <laughs> well, we are just about done because we fast forwarded through the boring parts of the movie. Not that there are that many, but just the, the, the parts that don't really, that I didn't take any notes, I guess I should say, not boring parts, so I apologize. I, I was just going to, I was just going to ask you what you consider to be boring parts of the movie. <laughs> well, I, and, and it, and it was probably parts that I got so sucked into that I just didn't think to, oh, well, I need to take notes on this while I'm watching it instead of, so yeah, I, I, I spoke incorrectly. Please forgive me. But the, <laughs> The whole basis of the movie was so that way Flynn could take over Encon, and he does, and he has his blue helicopter fly in, and he hugs his fellow programs, and we fade to black, and that is the end of the movie. And we got the nice 1980s graphics for for everybody's names being popped up and everything (laughs) like that. And I mean, this is this is about as perfect a movie as I have ever as I've watched. And I'm 150 episodes in, and don't really yeah, have. I'm, I'm very, I'm very curious what you think of the of the score to this movie of the of the musical oh score. I knew you were going to ask me, and I was I was unfortunately not paying attention to it. I was I was engrossed in the movie. <laughs> and, and, it's I, a and I should have, I, I should have known, having listened to you on um, on all of your is it Jaws episodes where you, where you're like, well, Paul, what did you think of the score? <laughs> yeah, I'm 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 the soundtrack guy, so yeah, <laughs> I that's that's one of the things I I always you know take into account when uh you know when critiquing a movie is is the soundtrack because I'm you know I'm just I'm very you know that's my that's my genre of music is is movie music. So, but I, I love the score to this movie. This was uh, amongst one you know the very earliest albums I ever bought when I started to get into soundtracks because uh, Star Wars, the original Star Wars, is what got me uh, into movie music. Um, you know, and this is only five years later. You know, mm-hmm. uh, E two. So this this was still amongst the the early ones and uh, and just an album that I just absolutely wore out listening to I, I love it and uh, it was a long time coming on CD man it took forever and it was purely for one reason and that was Journey 
Journey held that up for ages because they had two tracks on the original album. And so when it came time that uh, that they wanted to put it out there on CD, there was some legal problem with that Journey music, and it just took forever to clear all that up to where they could finally uh, finally put it out there. But yeah, I love love the music to this movie. So let and, so let me ask you, since you are the soundtrack guy, mm-hmm. and that that may be the new title of you whenever you're on this show is <laughs> the soundtrack guy. Um. You said you wore out, so I take it you either had a um, tape or did you have a, a vinyl copy of it? Oh, I had the vinyl, yeah. I, I don't know that this was ever released on cassette. If it was, I never had it on cassette. Were um, the Journey songs on the vinyl? Yeah, yeah, there was. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I want to say there was one on each, because there were two tracks. There was the one that plays at the very end of the movie, which is mm-hmm. the um, Only Solutions. And then there was the 1990s theme, which we hear, I think that's what's playing in the arcade when when um, Alan and Laura go to the arcade. I think that's the music that's playing in the background is the 1990s theme. Um, but those were the two Journey tracks that were on the album. And I think, yeah, Only Solutions was the second track on side one. And then 1990s was... Um, I, it was on the it was on the flip side. I can't remember what order it was, but yeah, there, there was those two tracks. But that's that's what held it up in in legal limbo for the longest time when they wanted to put it out on uh, on CD. Because I remember when it finally came out on CD, that was a big deal because um, it had been so long. And I want to say that the that the sticker that they had on the CD said something about the vinyl, like, like first time since vinyl or something. So it may have never been on cassette. I, I, I really can't remember now, but yeah, really fantastic. And then I think there was another, I think there may have been two editions that they put out. I'm trying to remember, but I know that there was some unreleased music. There was at least one track that for years the only way you could hear that track was if you own the laser disc of the movie it was on there as like a bonus or something hmm. and then i think eventually they did another release of the cd or maybe it was another company that did it something like that but there was there was additional music from the movie that had never been released before but then there was also that bonus track that was called um it was called something like light cycle music or something. Cause there was a, what it was, was it was the music that was written, but never, it was like written and recorded, but then never used for the light cycle sequence, the, the battle, the, the three on three mm-hmm. that actually had a musical score, but they didn't, they chose not to use it. So if you, when you watch that in the movie, there is no music during that sequence. And that was one of the special features on the DVD, the two-disc DVD. Um, And again, I think that was a 20th anniversary release that you could watch that scene with the music and then kind of judge for yourself. And I love the music on its own. I don't like it in the scene. I I can totally see why they took it out because it just doesn't really fit. It's a great piece of music on its own, but with that scene, it just doesn't fit the mood of the scene, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. I, I see why Lisberger took it out. Um, but yeah, there were a couple other tracks. Um, 
that were released as well later on. But yeah, it's a, it's a great soundtrack. I wish they would release it again um, and just do it straight chronological, you know, as, as the music happens in the movie, because the, at least the releases that I know of that are out there, the ones that I have, um, a lot of the music is kind of uh, amalgamated to where like, you know, in order to make a longer track, they would take music from like several different scenes and just kind of Mm -hmm. push them all together. So it Mm -hmm. jumps around. I mean, it, it makes a cohesive track, but they're actually from, you know, divergent parts of the movie. So, you know, that, that sort of thing, when I, if I'm actually paying attention to the music when I'm listening to it, then it always kind of hits that OCD because I'm like, wait, that just <laughs> jumped to like a completely different part of the movie type of thing. But, but yeah, I really liked the, the music to this. It was, uh, uh, Wendy Carlos, um, shortly after, um, becoming Wendy Carlos. Um, she had previously been, um, somebody else. So, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. All right. Well, Scott, it, as is usually the case when we talk, it is never an hour long show. Even (laughs) with, even with the editing, it's not even going to be close to an hour. It's going to be well over that. So the, the, the fans of the show are getting a extra long director's cut direct to DVD edition of this (laughs) episode. So, Rather than keep you on, I'll go ahead and say um, this movie is about as perfect of a Disney movie as, as I have done. With with the exception of what Scott said, I don't think this needs to be redone, with the exception of maybe that one part. But then, once again, it might turn it into a totally different movie that wouldn't have the following that it does. Um of course, oh, what, it, one thing I would like to throw out there real quick before before we wrap up is, okay. uh, you know, like I say, I was I was trying not to to bring Tron Legacy into into the discussion too much. Um, however, there there is a sequel to this movie that I really want to recommend to people that uh, that I feel like not enough people are aware of. Now, it's not it's no longer canon. It's no longer really embraced by Disney or anything, but at one time, you know, before legacy came along, it it was kind of the official unofficial sequel to Tron. Um, but there was a video game. Um, I'm trying to remember what year this was, maybe early two thousands. I think, um, I don't think it's any older than that. Um, but it was called just simply Tron 2.0. Um, it still holds up today. It is a great game. And uh, there was actually a comic book series that was inspired by the game. It's really hard to find, so you'd probably end up having to, you know, track it down digitally, um, you know, online somewhere. Um, but uh, I, I can't remember the exact name of the comic. I think the comic was just simply called Tron 2.0 as well. There, there might be a subtitle in there. I'm not sure. Um, but it was a six-issue series by Slave Labor Graphics. Actually, trying to track down the individual issues is going to run you a lot of money because it didn't have a big print run, and it's mm-hmm. really, really hard to find because I'm still missing issue six. Um, but both well worth your time, especially the video game. I will recommend the video game far and above the comic book series. The comic book series was pretty good, but the art was a little weird and the story's a little disjointed. 
but the uh, the video game, which I'm sure you could find, you know, in the back issue market for for dirt cheap because it's an older PC game these days. And I think it was out for the original Xbox, I want to say, and maybe even one other system. I can't remember. Um, but again, um, I mean, if you're a Tron fan, but you you never played that game or never you know never discovered it, so worth your time. And to me, it is the only true sequel to Tron because it feels the same. Um, it's very true to the story. It's very true to the characters. Um, it basically picks up from the first movie. You know, of course, several years have gone by and there's new characters and that sort of thing. But it's not disjointed from the original movie like I feel like Tron Legacy is just incredibly disjointed from Tron to where it doesn't it doesn't feel like the same world to me. Um, but Tron 2.0, yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Check it out if you haven't. Tron 2.0 is available on Steam. Just doing a yeah, quick there, search. There you go. So there you go. Yeah, great great game. All right, well, Scott. It's been a pleasure. I, I know you've got things that you need to do, so I will go <laughs> ahead and, and 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 let and let you go. But before I do, I want for you to pimp where where we can find you in case this uh, is the person's first time listening. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. I really really appreciate. Hey, it's my it's pleasure. Always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, and you know, like I said, I could go on for hours and hours and hours about Tron. So. <laughs> Um, but you can find me on the Two True Freaks Network. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E, Freaks Network. Um, the show that I'm uh, I'm on uh, most often these days is called Back to the Bins, where we discuss uh, just back-issue comic books. So uh, come check us out. And he he does a very good job. It's it's one of the first things that I listen to when it releases on Saturday. So when I, the next oh, well, Monday is you. one of the first things that I listen to. May take me several days to listen through an episode because they do <laughs> talk ad nauseum like we have tonight about comic <laughs> books. But it's always good stuff. And I've found some comics that I picked up for whatever reason. <laughs> which is now littered in my in one of my rooms <laughs> but um yeah as is the case <laughs> when we say goodbye we always tell you to stay safe stay hungry and watch out for lasers that are trying to digitize we'll talk to y'all later that was fun thank you for listening you can send us feedback at be kind rewind dmp at gmail.com we welcome any kind of feedback, and it might get read on the air in a future podcast. Once again, the email address is BeKindRewindDMP at gmail.com. If you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast on whatever streaming service you are listening to us on. This and word of mouth are the two ways to help us reach a larger audience. Thank you in advance for doing this. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you have a great day. Goodbye. Presence. Another warrior is on the mesa. We're getting closer. I don't know how you survived, slave. It doesn't matter. Prepare to terminate. <laughs> Oh, <laughs>
programs have a desire to be useful. But in moments, you will no longer seek communication with each other or your superfluous users. You will each be part of me, and together, we will be complete. You should have joined me! We'd have made a great team! You're very persistent, Tron! I'm also better than you! over by the beam. Right next to me. What good will that do? I'm gonna jump. It's the only way to help Tron. Don't you need your rest? 